Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 33, Call on the Name. I've got less than a week to prepare for one of the biggest interviews I've done so far and will likely do for some time, uh, when on March 15th I'll be talking to Dr. James White from Alpha and Omega Ministries to talk about Roman Catholicism. But I wanted to publish an episode this week. So today we're going to look at something which powerfully supports the historic Christian teaching that Jesus is God in human flesh, something I was able to put together pretty quickly but which is nevertheless pretty powerful. Before we get into that, I just want to thank everybody who's been praying for me as I try to lose weight for the YMCA Seattle Summer Classic that's coming up in June. If you check out my powerlifting blog at chrisdatepower.blogspot.com, you'll see that in the past week I've lost about six pounds, which is encouraging, and it puts me on track to lose enough to compete in my desired weight class, but at the same time I've been frustrated because all that weight came off in the first few days of the week, and for about five days now I've been pretty stagnant. That, that despite eating what I think is a healthful number of calories and getting lots of exercise in. Uh, Now, I'm not going to let myself get too discouraged this early on, but my mood will probably be greatly affected one way or the other by how it goes for this next week. I'll let you know, and uh, do please continue to keep me in your prayers. Also, I've mentioned in a couple of shows that I've considered changing the name of my podcast due to how apparently difficult Theapologetics is to pronounce. (laughs) Uh, But a listener who befriended me on Facebook encouraged me in in a message that he sent me where he said, I recommend against changing the show name. The name says it all, despite the inability of some to pronounce it correctly. Theapologetics is the brand. Don't change it. It would be like the Coca-Cola classic debacle. So hang with it. Thanks for that, Philip. I appreciate it, and I'll take your advice into consideration. Uh, It's good to know that there's someone besides me who likes the name. (laughs) For now, I'll keep it as it is. Now, because I want to get this episode out the door quickly, I'll keep this intro short and end it here. Uh, Next up in my promo rotation is a show I've been enjoying called Evidence for Faith. Can anyone really know whether or not God exists? Is the Bible really true? Is Jesus the Son of God? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis, and we are the hosts of Evidence for Faith, the radio show now airing on Sundays from 4 to 5 p.m. at 10.20 a.m. Lots of people believe in God, but they don't think it's possible to know for certain that He really does exist. They believe because they think they ought to. Join us and our interesting guests as we explain the evidences so that you can know for certain that God exists, the Bible is a divinely inspired book, and that Jesus is the Son of God and was raised from the dead. So whether you're seeking answers for yourself or helping others who have doubts, Evidence for Faith will provide the encouragement and assurance you need. That's Evidence for Faith every Sunday from 4 to 5 p.m. where we are helping Christians become thinkers and thinkers become Christians. And check us out online at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. I stumbled upon Evidence for Faith when my podcast's iTunes page said that some of my listeners listen to it as well. It airs Sundays, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in southern New Jersey on WIBG 1020 AM and streaming live at WIBG.com. And you can check out past shows by subscribing to their podcast, which you can get at EvidenceForFaith.com. That's Evidence, the number four, Faith.com. And with that, let's move into today's topic. That I should call on the name 
Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. That was Acts chapter 9 verses 10 to 14 in which Jesus sends Ananias to lay hands on Saul, who would be called Paul. And we know it was Jesus who was speaking to Ananias because in verse 17, Ananias says to Saul, the Lord Jesus has sent me. But hidden in the, in the last inconspicuous verse I read is a powerful but often overlooked bit of evidence supporting the truth of the historic Christian teaching that Jesus, Jesus is God in human flesh. Notice that Ananias says to Jesus that Saul has the authority to imprison all who call on your name. Jehovah's Witnesses and other Arians recognize that Jesus pre-existed his incarnation, but they deny that he existed as God. Christadelphians and other Socinians go further than Arians, denying not only the deity of Christ, but denying altogether that he existed before his birth. As we saw way back in episode 5, God-Man, groups like these blatantly contradict the revealed word of God, which makes it clear that Jesus is, in fact, the creator God of the universe. We looked at a number of passages which demonstrate that, but I mentioned in that episode that what I presented there was only some of the biblical evidence, and that much more remained to be looked at. In today's short episode, we're going to look at how Ananias' words, call on your name, further buttress the case for Jesus' divinity made by we proponents of the historic Christian faith. First, it should be noted that this conversation between Ananias and the Lord is not at all the only place where Christians are said to call on Jesus' name. We see this again a bit later in verses 20 and 21. At once Saul began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on, his, on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? So believers were being imprisoned by Saul under the authority of the chief priests for calling on Jesus' name. We see this too in Paul's own account of his conversion, which he gave before the Jews who wanted to kill him in Acts chapter 22. Here's what he said in verses 12 to 16. A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law, and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight, and at that very time I looked up at him. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, and to see the righteous one, and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. But it is not just in the context of Paul's conversion that Christians are said to call on Jesus' name. In verse 2 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul directs his epistle to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. There the text is very explicit, and in a couple of other places it's a bit more implicit, but it's there, any, it's there nonetheless. 
In his letter to the Romans, for example, Paul writes this in in chapter 10, verses 9 to 14. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? So it's quite clear here that the one whose name believers are to call upon is that of Jesus Christ. And in verse 13, Paul quotes a passage which is quoted also by Peter in Acts chapter 2, verses 16 to 24, where Peter says to the Israelites in attendance, This is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Note that back in Romans 10, Paul linked believing that God raised Jesus from the dead with calling on Jesus' name, quoting Joel 2.32, and applying those words to Christ. Peter, too, links Jesus' resurrection with calling on the name of the Lord and goes on to command his listeners to be baptized in Christ's name. So Peter also applies Joel's words to Jesus. But to whom was Joel speaking? Joel chapter 2 verse 1 reads, Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. And the words the Lord in the original Hebrew is God's name, Yahweh. Again in verse 11, Joel says, Yahweh utters his voice before his army. The day of Yahweh is indeed great and very awesome. Throughout the passage, it is evident that the one and only Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is in view. And in verse 27, it is very clear that he is doing the speaking when he says, Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. Yahweh continues speaking throughout the rest of the passage, and he uses his name in the verse quoted by Peter and Paul, saying in verse 32, It will come about that whoever calls on the name of Yahweh will be delivered. So Paul and Peter make it clear that when believers call upon the name of Yahweh, they are calling on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jehovah's Witnesses, Christadelphians, and other various Arians and Sicinians are simply without excuse for denying the obvious reality of God's revealed word, which is this, Jesus is Yahweh, the Lord, one true God of Israel, on whose name believers are to call in order to be saved. Now, some may think that what I've said is a bit of a stretch. Sure, they might admit, Ananias and Paul very clearly talk about calling on Jesus' name. But when Paul and Peter quote Joel, it isn't obvious that they are equating Jesus with the Yahweh of Joel's prophecy. Of course, I disagree. Both Paul and Peter quote Joel when talking specifically about calling on Jesus' name. In and of itself, this resoundingly refutes those who deny the deity of Jesus. But what I want to do today is look at how variations of Joel's phrase, calls on the name of the Lord, are used throughout the Old Testament. 
what you're going to see, I think, is that the phrase is used numerous times, but never is the phrase used positively in reference to anybody's name but that of God. And even where it's used negatively, it's in reference to calling on the name of false gods. Never is the phrase used to refer to calling on anybody's name who isn't at least believed to be God. We already looked at Joel 2.32, which very obviously refers to calling on the name of Yahweh. But in my search for variations of the phrase in the Bible, I was able to find some 26 other times it is used throughout the Old Testament. We'll begin, well, <laughs> at the beginning, with the books of Genesis and Exodus. Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 and 26 read, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son, and named him Seth. For, she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. The word Lord there is, as it was in the case with Joel, God's name, Yahweh. We see this again in Genesis 12, 7-8. The Lord appeared to Abraham, Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Genesis 13, 3-4. Abram went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And again in Genesis 21, 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Isaac does the same in Genesis 26, 24-25. The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Moses follows in Abraham's and Isaac's footsteps in Exodus 34, 5-7, which reads, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with Moses as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps his loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. In each of these uses of the call upon the name of the Lord phrase, God's name, Yahweh, is what's rendered Lord. Abraham called him the everlasting God. He told Isaac, I am the God of your father Abraham. And he said to Moses that he is the Lord God, the one who forgives iniquity. There can be no mistaking that in each of these first six places in which variations of the phrase are used, the one true God of Israel is the one whose name is called upon. We continue our survey by looking at how the phrase is used in Kings and Chronicles. To show that Baal's prophets worshipped an impotent, non-existent false god, Elijah defied a clever test in 1 Kings 18.22-26, which reads as follows. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood and will not put a fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. 
and the God who answers by fire, he is God. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves, and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they leaped about the altar which they made. Like Abraham, Isaac, and Moses, here Elijah says he will call upon the name of Yahweh, and he says that the one who answers is God, which proved to be Yahweh later in that account. Here also is the only place in which one whose name is called upon is not Yahweh, as Elijah encourages the false prophets to call upon the name of their false god, Baal, otherwise known as Baal, for those who don't want to pronounce it the right way. <laughs> but even here, the one who is not Yahweh, whose name is called upon, is believed to be God. And it is thereafter demonstrated that this false god, Baal, does not exist at all, when Baal's prophets pray and nothing happens. And Elijah prays to the Lord, and the altar was consumed by fire. Very clearly, the Hebraic understanding of calling on the name refers to calling on God's name, specifically to prayer, in, this case, in, the, in at least these cases. This is evident, too, in Second Kings 5, 9-11. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought, I, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. You see, Naaman thought Elijah would immediately pray to Yahweh that Naaman's leprosy would be cured. David links calling on the name of the Lord with praying to Yahweh also in 1 Chronicles 16, 8-9. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him. So of the 11 places we've looked at so far where variations of the phrase are used, calling on the name of the Lord is used to speak of praying to what one believes is truly God. In all the places it's used positively, it refers to calling on the name of Yahweh, the everlasting God, the God of Abraham, who forgives sin. And in the two other places it's used mockingly of calling upon false gods. But we're not done there. The phrase is used several times throughout the Psalms. Psalm 79.6 reads, Pour out your wrath upon the nations which do not know you, and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon your name. Psalm 80.18 says, Then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name. Psalm 99.5-6 admonishes us, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. Psalm 105.1 tells us, O oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. And the phrase is used three times in Psalm 116. In verse 4, Then I called upon the name of the Lord, O Lord, I beseech you, save my life. Again in verse 13, I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. And in verse 17, To you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. Each of these seven uses of the phrase in the Psalms speak of calling upon the name of Yahweh, giving us now 18 places where the phrase is used, all of which speak of calling upon the name one believes to be truly God. 16 of which do, in fact, refer to the one true God. 
But we're still not done. The prophets used a phrase in this fashion as well. And we'll look first at Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 12, verse 4, he tells Israel, And in that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name. In chapter 41, verse 25, he depicts Yahweh as saying, I have aroused one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, he will call on my name. In chapter 64, verse 7, Isaiah says to Yahweh, There is no one who calls on your name. And he begins chapter 65 by depicting Yahweh as saying, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, Here I am, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. In Jeremiah 10.25, the prophet says to Yahweh, Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the families that do not call your name. And in Lamentations 3.55-56, he prays to Yahweh, saying, I called on your name, O Lord, out of the lowest pit. You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my prayer for relief, from my cry for help. Zephaniah followed suit, writing in Zephaniah 3.9, For then I will give to the peoples purified lips, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord, to serve him shoulder to shoulder. So does Zechariah, saying in Zechariah 13.9, And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. So that brings our count to 26 uses of the phrase, 27 counting Joel. And as was the case in all the other examples we looked at, the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, and Zechariah all speak of calling upon the name of Yahweh. So I've been able to find these 27 uses of the phrase, and if you discover more, please let me know by emailing me at theapologetics.hotmail.com. But I do want to give you a, a bit of a heads up. You may stumble upon what seems at first glance to be an exception to the rule. Listen to how the NASB renders a portion of Isaiah 44.5, and that one will call on the name of Jacob. When I saw this, I was kind of taken aback, and I wondered if maybe I was wrong, if, if perhaps the Bible did, at least in this one case, speak favorably of calling on the name of someone other than God. But look at, these, look at the verse as it's, as it's rendered in its entirety. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, Belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. You see, in context, this prophecy is speaking of identifying oneself with another, not calling upon one's name or praying to him. This is a perhaps rare example of the NASB very poorly rendering the original text. Here's how the NIV renders Isaiah 44.5. Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. Or the New Living Translation, others will say, I am a descendant of Jacob. Even the KJV renders this one better than the NASB, shall call himself by the name of Jacob. You see, Isaiah isn't prophesying favorably of people calling on the name of Jacob. He's prophesying of people proudly identifying themselves as descendants of Jacob and as belonging to the Lord. You can see this kind of thing in Deuteronomy 28.10, where God says, All the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord. Or 2 Samuel 6.2, where David brought the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts. And in Isaiah 43.7, where Yahweh speaks of everyone who is called by my name, and whom I have created for my glory. So Isaiah 44.5 uh, simply is not an exception. And the rule stands without exception. You see, 
Of these 27 places in the Old Testament where the phrase is used, without exception, it refers to calling on the name of what one believes to be truly God. 25 of them paint calling upon the name of Yahweh in a positive light, and a mere two mock calling on the name of a false god. Could the case really be any more compelling? The Old Testament speaks only of calling on the name of what one believes to be God and speaks favorably only of calling on the name of Yahweh. And in the New Testament, the phrase is used repeatedly to speak of calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ananias, the disciple, and the apostles Peter and Paul simply would not say, they simply wouldn't say that Christians call on the name of Jesus, unless Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Now, despite how clear this is, groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Christadelphians are going to try desperately to reason in favor of their anti-biblical doctrine of Christ, because their tradition is what's really their authority, not the Bible. And as part of this desperation, there are perhaps two passages from Scripture that they might point you to, as if they suggest that the biblical authors would have no problem with calling upon the name of someone other than God. Let's look briefly at those before we wrap up. First, Exodus 23, verses 20 and 21 read like this. Behold, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression, since my name is in him. Someone who denies the deity of Christ might point to this passage as evidence that one can call upon the name of someone who is not God, since the Lord here says he's going to send an angel, and that his name is in that angel. But there are a couple of reasons why this passage doesn't do damage to the case that I've presented. First, there's good reason to think that the angel, and I'm saying that in quotes, in this passage is not a created being at all, but it is in fact God himself. One day I plan to do an episode devoted solely to this angel of the Lord, as he is often referred to in the scriptures, but I'll cover him a little bit here. The word angel here is the translation of the Hebrew word malak, which simply means messenger. We can't simply assume that the passage is talking about a created angel. In Exodus 3 verse 2, the angel or messenger of the Lord appeared to Moses in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. But in verse 4, it's the Lord himself who saw that Moses turned aside to look and God called to Moses from the midst of the bush. Did, did you catch that? Verse 2 depicts the angel of the Lord appearing in the bush. And verse 4 depicts God as speaking from the midst of the bush. The angel goes on in verse 6 to call himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses hides his face for fear of looking at God. In Genesis 16:7, the angel of the Lord appears to Sarai, and in verse 10 says, I will greatly multiply your descendants. And in verse 13, Sarai comes up with the name el Roi, you are the God who sees me, to describe the Lord who had spoken to her. So in these and other passages, it is evident that the Malach, or messenger, or angel of the Lord, is no created angel, but is the Lord himself. So what do we see here in Exodus 23, the passage that we're looking at? Well, in verse 21, it is implied that this so-called angel is able to forgive sins. And in verse 22, the Israelites are told to obey the angel's voice and do all that I, that is God, say. Oh, you catch that? Obey the angel's voice and do all that I say. <laughs> Notice, too, that God says in verse 23 that the angel will bring them into the land of the Amorites. But in Joshua 24, 8, Yahweh says he brought them into the land of the Amorites, that he gave the Amorites into the hands of the Israelites, and that he destroyed the Amorites. 
I mean, like, like I said, I want to do a whole episode on this figure, but suffice it to say that based on what little we've looked at just now, critics of Jesus' divinity are shooting themselves in the foot by appealing to Exodus 23, since the passage seems pretty clearly to refer to a messenger of God that is a manifestation of God himself. Second, even if we were to grant that the passage is talking about a created angel, it wouldn't do any damage to the case I've presented today. Not only does the text nowhere say that the Israelites are to call on the angel's name, but in verse 21, God says his name is in the messenger. As we've seen, throughout the Old Testament, believers are to call upon the Lord's name. But in the New Testament, we're told to call upon Jesus' name, not the name of God in him. So this passage simply does Arians and Socinians no good. That leaves us with one more passage to which they might appeal. Philippians 2, 9-11 says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice that verse 9 says God bestowed on Jesus the name which is above every name. Those who deny that Jesus is God might point to this passage as evidence that, although as, as we've seen, the consistent testimony of Scripture says we are all to call upon the name of God, somehow this passage might suggest that he bestowed upon Jesus the name upon which believers are to call. In other words, he isn't by nature God and thus to have his name called upon, but rather he was given the name we are to call upon. Once again, this passage does no damage to the case we've looked at today, and, and as was the case with the other passage we looked at, Arians and Sicinians shoot themselves in the foot by appealing to this passage. Look at what verses 5-7 to seven say. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. You see, for one thing, Paul says Jesus existed in the form of God. The NIV renders it being in very nature God. The Amplified Bible says being essentially one with God and in the form of God, possessing the fullness of the attributes which make God God. <laughs> the New Living Translation reads, he was God. So by appealing to this passage, critics of Jesus' deity appeal to a passage which, in fact, says what we're saying, that Jesus is God. But furthermore, verse 3 says we are to regard one another as more important than ourselves, and verse 5 says we are to have the same attitude Christ had. Verse 6 says that although Jesus was God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now think about this carefully. Are we being called in this passage to treat others who, are, who genuinely are more important than us as if they are more important than us? Of course not, and that obviously wouldn't be humility, it would be rational. <laughs> no, we are being called to treat others who are our equals, as if they are more important than us. And if Jesus' attitude toward his Father is being given as an example to follow, then Jesus too must be equal in nature to his Father, but humbly submitting to him. That's why the NIV says in verse 6 that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. It's why the Amplified Bible says he did not think this equality with God was a thing to be eagerly grasped or retained. And it's why the New Living Translation says he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. So when Paul says God bestowed upon Jesus the name above every name, he's already said Jesus is God, but that he humbled himself. And when in verse 9 he says God exalted Jesus and bestowed the name upon him, he's talking about a return to his exalted position. 
The Father didn't bestow upon Jesus a name he didn't previously have. He bestowed upon Jesus the authority he temporarily put aside in humbling himself by appearing as a man and dying on a cross. That's why in John 17:5 Jesus says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So let's wrap things up by summarizing what we've seen today. The New Testament repeatedly, and I might add exclusively it seems, exhorts believers to call upon the name of Jesus Christ. In doing so, it applies Joel's call upon the name of Yahweh to Jesus, equating Jesus with Yahweh. Beyond that, some 27 times, the Old Testament speaks of calling upon the name of someone in some variation of the phrase or another, and in every single one of those cases, it refers to calling upon the name of one who is believed to be God. In all but two of those, 27 uses of the phrase, it is spoken of positively and speaks of calling upon the name of Yahweh, and in the two other places it is used negatively, mocking others for calling on the name of false gods. The two passages critics of Jesus' divinity might point to actually bolster this case, since in one case the messenger of the Lord appears to be the Lord himself, and in the other, Paul says what the church has said for nearly 2,000 years and what true disciples of Christ unite in affirming to this day. That Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, the Anthropus, the God-man. And everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be saved. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you've enjoyed this short episode of the Theapologetics podcast. And I hope that you'll join me for the next episode in which, Lord willing, I'll be interviewing Dr. James White to talk about Roman Catholicism and the issue of authority. Until then...